0: com thrive For 20% off your first order.
1: Hey there. Ever wonder what happens to all those amazing screenplays that never make it to the big screen? Well, wonder no more? Welcome to Table Read Podcast, where we bring those undiscovered gems to life. Picture this. Talented actors giving incredible performances with the occasional laugh or blooper thrown in, produced by award-winning pros, From drama to comedy, TV pilots to feature films,
0: there's something for everyone. And guess what? We release new episodes every week, so don't forget to hit that
1: subscribe button. Table Read Podcast, where great stories finally get their chance to shine.
0: Hi, I'm Shanti. And I'm Lynx, and you're listening to
2: Muses. Enjoy the show. With us today is Jessica Stewart, aka Jessa, an award-winning vocalist, instrumentalist, and songwriter who began her musical career as the Jessica Stewart Few, touring all over the world in places such as North America, Asia, Europe, and Australia. This past year, she's released her fourth album, Simple
3: Songs, under the name Jessa. Fans may also recognize her from the CBC short documentary, Finding Fukue." which followed Jessa's journey to Japan as she looked for her long-lost childhood best friend. Welcome, Jessa.
4: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here with you ladies.
3: I'm very excited to have you. We are friends in real life. Yeah. We've sort of discussed a couple of these things before, but not in full detail, but I'm always fascinated and I, I always want to ask you questions, but I wanted to like save it <laughs> for an interview. So... Thank you so much for being here. And I'm just going to get straight into it. I'd love to talk a little bit about your musical background. I believe you grew up in a musical household. I'm wondering, were you naturally drawn to it from the beginning? What kind of music were you listening to growing up?
4: Well, my mother is an incredible musician. She's just like, she's just so good. She's very good at everything she does. So she was trained classically and also as an ethnomusicologist specializing in Asian instruments, which is like the Asian connection. It leads into the Asian connection and why I was in Japan and so on and so forth and why I played the Japanese instrument, the koto. But my mother is like, she's from New York and of that vintage, that like Broadway musicals were like pop music. So my sister and I, from the time we were very teeny, were surrounded by music and my father played too and then my mom would sort of teach us song and dance routines from the time we were really really young and we'd perform them for the people coming over to our houses so you know I'm I'm that's like a very comfortable spot that I grew up in, you know, next to the piano, next to my mother. And then, you know, when I was, I think when I was three, they started me in violin lessons. And then when I was five, I started piano. And then only later, when I was a teenager, I started playing guitar. And that's when I started really connecting to music and wanting to write music and starting to just dabble in writing music. So yeah, I have a totally musical background and I definitely was predisposed to it. And, but also it came easy to me. I had always a good ear. And so when I was learning to play guitar, for instance, I started playing guitar because I heard a Led Zeppelin album and I was like I want to do that but I of course didn't know how to play that well yet because I was just picking up the instrument but my ear was strong enough so I would learn the riffs that I liked by ear and then practice those things that were too hard for me over and over again until I could play them fluently and that's actually the basis of my guitar playing. so all the theory and the technical stuff comes later but yeah so it was totally by ear
3: Wow, that's amazing. I don't think people realize how incredible that is to like just be able to hear something and mm-hmm. like pick it out for especially like a Zeppelin. Are you kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> that's what you started
4: with. <laughs> well, that's I'm always I've always been like a little bit stubborn, I suppose. And maybe I'm like growing out of that a little bit as I as I get older and have more life experience. But I think my stubbornness has made me feel like i can do things even if others tell me that i shouldn't be able to like i mean even just the idea of like i heard heart for the first time and i was like that was that was a couple of years before i heard zeppelin because there was some record around and and i realized i was like oh so wait, women are allowed to play rock music. Okay, here, I got it now. I can do this now. Right. And so even though it was very rare, I was like, I've seen, okay, I get, I'm allowed to do this now. And so then I wanted to pursue it. And so I pursued it through Jimmy Page, I guess.
2: Damn, that's so good. I love that. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. (laughs) Like I can read sheet music and I've got like a little bit of technical stuff. And then my brother, on the other hand, can just smoke me on the piano because he can hear something once, get down there, and he just knows yeah. how to put things together. And, you know, so it's so cool that you're able to do both of those things. It yeah, they must be working lucky. two different sides of your brain, I imagine.
4: I guess so. And they kind of like, I think they've formed a little bond in there yeah. now. <laughs> There's like a place where they work together. And that's where I, that's how I have a job as a professional musician. It's been like 12 years I've been doing music professionally now with no other income. So it's, it's good.
2: Wonderful. Yeah. Well, you mentioned briefly your childhood. So we just want to have you elaborate a little bit more. You're originally from Vancouver, but when you were nine, you spent a highly influential year in Japan. Can you talk about that experience and how it shaped you both musically and personally?
4: Yeah, definitely. It was highly influential. I have, I think, more memories from childhood from that one year than I do from most of the rest of my childhood. Because, you know, when you're a kid, you think that the experience around you is the experience of other kids your age. And uh, everyone has that experience. You just think it's a common experience because you have no other gauge for it. But when I got to small town Japan, 6,000 person farm town called Saku City you know they had just gotten a sewage system the year before we moved there they just introduced bread to the supermarket when we were there because like rice is like the Japanese thing and they consider it's like rice or bread that's what they consider in a meal you one or the other so bread was the new thing and my family was the only family buying certain bread products so they had us do like bread demonstrations in the grocery store. It was that different from where I came from. And then, of course, we're the only non-Japanese family to ever live in that town. As a family, there had been a random English teacher here and there. So you can imagine that there was culture shock for the Japanese kids there, seeing a non-Japanese person for the first time, and also vice versa. I mean, I didn't, might, despite my parents' best efforts to get us to learn Japanese in advance, my sister and I were kind of being brats and felt like it wasn't our choice to move to Japan you're making us leave Vancouver our school our comfortable house the place we know for a place we don't know we don't want to do any extra time doing anything in preparation for that so we got there and we got dumped into Japanese elementary school and didn't even speak the language and then we're surrounded by kids our age and like they're like touching my blonde hair at that time and like they're looking at me and they're pointing at their noses and saying all these different names and I found out very soon after that Japanese people don't point to their chest when they're talking about themselves so I thought they were trying to teach me the word for nose but then there was like 30 different words for nose and I'm like I'm not this is gonna be hard to learn this <laughs> language but in fact they were just introducing themselves by by name and and that's what it was and it was a crazy culture shock and actually my first communication with everyone was that my parents had given me this mini little Japanese English dictionary and I was like this isn't working I can't, everyone's talking to me I can't talk back to them I don't understand what's going on and so I looked up the word for drawing which is the word eh it's the short word and so I like pointed to it and to them and then they started drawing for me and I started drawing for them and that was like our first real communication so like it was a totally you know different experience and then on top of Japanese elementary school and life in small town with rice patties and the the uh, roasted sweet potato man instead of the ice cream man going around with his truck and like it was just totally different on top of that, I was also doing Canadian correspondence course so I could go into grade five when I got home and not be behind my other age mates. So all of that was a really crazy experience. And then, you know, the the bigger part of that is that I learned some major life lessons too, because, you know, I became really good friends with Fukue, who's the girl that I go to look for in, the, or the woman I should say, that I go to look for in the documentary that you were mentioning. And You know, she was seemed to be the only person who actually was interested in me, the person and not in me, the popular girl, which I was a total loner, like hardly any friends at all at my school in Vancouver. And me, the same person went from being very solitary with not that many friends to going to Japan and being like the most popular kid that everyone wanted to be friends with. And I think that that was the beginning of some serious life lesson learning for me about how, I don't know how to say this exactly, but you know, how perception plays such a part in our feeling of worth, you know, all of a sudden I was like this commodity, but before I was like, who cares? And, but I'm the same person and nothing changed of me between then and and that, you know, and when I experienced that other thing. So I, I realized that people aren't always fair in their judgments. And then and then in becoming close with my friend Fukui and finding out towards the end of the year that I lived there that she was really, really poor. And that's why I'd seen people around the corner being mean to her when they didn't think I was around and kind of bullying her and, and saying bad things about her. And it was because she was poor, but she was the coolest girl there. And so this taught me a lot of lessons about people and their judgments and perception and openness and compassion and uh, how, yeah, yeah, there's a, there's a lot. I, I, I guess that was kind of like, I like grew up a little bit in that year because I learned all of these things and I've, I've really kept that with me. I've always been, you know, in high school, I was an advocate for gay rights and for other things like that. And, and then now like, I just feel like I, I um, align myself with the underdog a lot. And I can see, you know, I, I feel like I have compassion because of that year experience. And then I also started playing Koto when I was in Japan. So musically that, that came around to my career, my current career, but yeah, that's basically it.
3: It's just so crazy. Like in one year, so much can happen.
4: Yeah, and for a child, one year as a child is a, is a lot. Is a lot. For
3: sure. Absolutely. Do, yeah. Do you guys Usually. remember
4: when you were younger that you could like? Were you able to tell exactly the age of the people? in your age range, like from your, where you lived, like you could tell, oh, that person's this many years old. Like one year difference made a huge, you could tell, oh, that's a grade five. That's a grade four. That's a grade six. Even if you didn't know them, you kind of could smell it on them or something. (laughs) Time is a
3: different thing when you're young. It's, it's, it's long. And like you said, yeah, it's so much more
2: distinctive somehow. Yeah. You mentioned Koto. Can you explain that instrument?
4: Yeah, no problem. It's a traditional Japanese instrument, which was originally made to entertain the emperor in the royal court like thousands of years ago, maybe, I don't know, maybe 1500 or so years ago, but it's got 13 strings and it's horizontally strung. So it kind of looks like a surfboard or an ironing board type thing, but it has horizontally strung these 13 strings and they're held up by each, an individual bridge, which makes it uh, have its pitch so it's tuned traditionally pentatonically but I do whatever I want to it because I'm writing my own music with it but yeah and I think and the instrument itself was originally kind of like the origin, the grandmother instrument of all of those similar instruments from around Asia is the gujang which is the Chinese one which has a different number of strings played slightly differently but it's like there's like a Vietnamese instrument called the dan tran and the there's a Korean one called the gaya and these are all similar and then the Japanese one is the so that's the family of instruments it belongs in
3: was there something specific about it that drew you to it
4: yeah it was just the sound because my mother played already and she also played shamisen which is like a square body three string more like a banjo-y sounding instrument so why I chose like the biggest most impractical instrument for touring for my future (laughs) I don't know but um (laughs) that's what happened. I just thought it sounded really pretty kind of like dreamy and, and and I just really attached to it. And so when we were in Japan, I would go with my mother to her Koto teacher in another small town. We'd take a train to a small town where her Koto teacher was and we'd do these lessons together with her teacher and some recitals and this and that. But that's where I, I got started. And then when I came back to Vancouver then my mother and I continued to play and my mother actually has a teaching license called a mankyo which means she's been playing for a very long time and has passed these scrupulous tests to achieve that status. And so I did some of that with her but then I kind of put it down for a long time and only re- revisited koto when I moved to Toronto to do music for my, my profession.
2: We're going to take a quick pause in our show to tell you about usual wines. Usual wines are wines for the modern drinker, a.k.a. me, and maybe you too. Each bottle is 6.3 ounces, which is a heavy pour or about a glass and a half of wine. So no more pouring wine down the sink when you don't want to finish the bottle. You know what else I've done? Don't tell anyone. I've poured wine from my glass back into the bottle when I couldn't finish it. But not anymore. Because of the single-serve format and bottle design, Usual is always fresh, no more flat, bubbly, or stale rosé. Usual has a red blend, a rose, and a sparkling white wine called Brut. The wines are low carb and have zero grams of sugar. My favorite was the white, which was surprising because I'm usually a red drinker. I could taste the elderflower and it really smelled lovely, like bergamot. It's refreshing and not too sweet not too sour or too crisp, and there's a really good balance. I was thinking maybe the lemon would make it too citrusy, but I think it really evens it out and actually gives it a really smooth taste. I would definitely order these again, and I hope you will too. Usual wines are made from world-class AVAs, American multicultural area in California, like Napa, Sonoma, and Santa Barbara, and are made with minimal intervention, zero sugar, and zero additives. We have a special holiday product coming early November, Usual Reserve. It's an ultra-premium, limited-edition Mount Viter Cabernet Sauvignon. Introducing Usual Reserve. This is our most special wine yet, just in time for the holidays. Hailing from one of the most celebrated plots of land in all of Napa, this Cabernet Sauvignon is concentrated and rich with just enough grip. Gift it to someone special or keep it all for yourself. The holidays as usual. Go check out their website at www.usualwines.com and use our discount code muses for $8 off your first order and try your first glass on us. That's www.usualwines.com and use our discount code muses for $8 off your first order enjoy. You produced three albums,
3: Kid Dream, Two Sides to Every Story, and The Passage as the Jessica Stewart few. Yes. And your latest one now Simple Songs is under the name Jessa. Can you talk a little bit about your progression of your work and what separates Jessa from the Jessica Stewart few?
4: Yeah. Well, when I came here, I was learning what my voice was as a songwriter because my previous experience, I'd played in a bunch of bands on the West Coast and wherever I was around the world, but they were all kind of like you jam together and come up with ideas together and then maybe one person throws lyrics down, which Occasionally might be me, but it wasn't primarily me. So I was never responsible for creating entire songs, the entire accompaniment, melody, and, and lyric. And so when I came to Toronto and I didn't have a huge amount of connections around here at first, I knew I had to be responsible for that. So I was sort of like flexing my muscle and like learning how to produce songs without that environment that had made it so easy previously. So I would say that Kid Dream was like my... I needed to put out Kid Dream to be able to learn what to do for the future and become a better recording artist, because uh, I was a good musician already. And so I think that was kind of like my, that was like the stumble through album. And then by the time I put that out, I realized some things, you know, I, I was writing music in basically whatever genre I wanted. I just wanted it to be as creative as I, I wanted. It. And so this put it kind of between genres, kind of slightly jazzy, slightly popish, slightly proggy. Um, you know, so it was kind of really in between and when I put out my second album, Two Sides to Every Story in twenty thirteen, I had got my shit together. I'm am I allowed to swear?
3: Oh yeah.
4: <laughs> oh, great. Fantastic. This is gonna change the rest of this podcast, right? <laughs> um so yeah, I had gotten my shit together and I learned how to tap into, cause you know, I have a lot of opinions. I'm not, I'm not someone who doesn't, you know, have thoughts about what's going on. I have a, I have a lot of, um, a lot of thoughts and a lot of opinions. And I learned kind of how to tap into those intense, most intense feelings and translate that into lyric. And that seems to work and same with musically. So I kind of like, figured out what I was going to do and then put out two really great albums. But the problem is the co- cross genre-ness of it kept being a stumbling block for me. And every, every, achievement that I had, I can tell you, I almost had no champions at all during my whole career. So I have sculpted every opportunity for myself with very little outside help. So I I haven't had a good manager. I haven't had a good booking agent. I haven't had a good record label. I've sort of done it all myself and been able to tour around the world doing that, put out a bunch of records and have, you know, earn a good reputation for having a high quality of work and being an interesting musician and not doing some cookie cutter thing but it just kept preventing me from doing all these other things and and so after the third album which I thought was my best came out I I got depressed because it was like as if it never happened we got almost no reviews it's like my best piece of art my best piece of work no reviews it's as if it never happened and maybe it was bad timing or maybe it was something else but it was just like no ripples at all and I was like I have been working so hard to get here and I, I can't put in this amount of work for this amount of return so I just was like needed a a break. So I took a year off and just did side person work basically and would play, you know, my original music when people would book me and throw money at me. But um, after that year, I kind of came back refreshed and I had this idea while I was depressed. I remember ranting to my boyfriend at the time and saying, I bet you if I wrote songs with four chords that it would be the most successful thing that I've ever done in my whole career. And we laughed and cried about it. And then, uh, you know, but I, I remembered that. And so then I was like in the bathroom, like brushing my teeth one day, and then I heard the melody for like the song "Simple Little Song," which was the starting point of that whole project. And I just wanted it to be something that people hear the first time and can sing along to. And that was something I had never aspired to with my previous music. I just kind of wanted to be as creative as I wanted and express myself. But be cool to try to try make it more of a make it more easy to connect to for the general public, I suppose. So I started writing an album with that in mind. And then I I hired a producer who I'd worked with actually as her guitar player uh, years before, but I knew she was doing amazing things. And we had a really great working vibe together. And then I, so I, we made this album and it was made for commercial intent, but the trick was to make it still sound like me, yet still be suitable for radio or commercial use. And so I wanted to change the name of the project because of that because this is now an indie pop thing that fits in the box. And the previous thing is like anything goes, my crazy creative mind and imagination at work. So I wanted to name those things differently, but I think I'm just going to go by Jessa from here on in. And I think that people don't really notice the difference between music. If I tell them it's indie pop, maybe I'll just have more opportunities anyway, even if I write whatever music I want.
3: (laughs) That's another question I had because you do kind of fall into so many different genres and categories. I was wondering if that has been an issue for you. And as a unique artist, people always have this need to like label things and that can be difficult when, you know, you're undefinable.
4: It is, it, it is difficult. And, you know, I've heard all sorts of things from like, you know, people coming, I've played at all these different music conferences, showcasing in order to have buyers hear my music, people from music festivals, artistic directors and things like that. And, you know, doing this for several years and then having good relationships with these artistic directors and applying for their festivals every year and every year getting rejected and not understanding because they keep coming back to my showcases. That means they're liking it. So then I would call them out on it, not call them out in a bad way, but say, hey, listen, I'm under the impression that you respect what I'm doing musically and that you really like my group and you keep coming to my showcase. So what exactly is it that's preventing me from booking your festival? And one festival director, a director of two major folk festivals in Canada, he said, we're not in the business of breaking acts. That's what he said to me, which was, I was like,
2: weird, because I thought that was kind of your job <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, but ca- Canada well, is we only really want safe. you unless like other people want you first, or yeah. we only want yeah. you unless... we got to be told yeah. by someone else. Yes, exactly.
4: <laughs> so so that's the Canadian problem. Like from my experience with being elsewhere and being raised by New York parents, um, this is one of the Canadian problems is that people want someone else to sign off on it first. They don't want to stick their neck out and say, I have a assertive opinion about something lest the popular opinion contradicts what they have said. And this is a problem for doing on your music or out-of-the-box stuff at all in canada so that's you know one of the problems there and same with radio you know i had some i could t- i i can't remember if i have told you links but i i remember there's like a story in particular where someone who's a major gatekeeper basically said that they wouldn't they don't even know what to do with me because i have this gimmick instrument and then they compared it to when the re- whatever most recent olympics in some asian country were and how in toronto at their pl- their place of business they had a player of a different Asian instrument and how it was pretty, but really what's the point. And that's what they said. So they wouldn't put my music on because they were tripped up on the Koto, which meanwhile is in my family lineage. I'm a second generation Koto player. My mother plays and I lived in Japan and I haven't gimmicked out that instrument at all. I just use it. People want to talk about it. People want to see pictures of it. They find it interesting. It's different from a guitar. Fine. But I have never gimmicked out that portion of my music career so it's just another instrument but that was enough that this major gatekeeper has put the gate down and so I am not even considered in that realm so
2: oh, that's just so because afraid. that person yeah. got to that point in their career too though doesn't mean that like maybe they necessarily got there because they know what's best for like Canadian artists or musicians or just about music in I general. That's why like when you get yeah. when you go to the higher up sometimes it can just be like ugh the music industry and the business can be like real shitty in a lot of ways.
4: Yeah, it's true and yeah, you get someone who just decides that they think that what you're doing is garbage and then and then they affect a lot of people around it.
2: I was just having this conversation with my boyfriend the other day. We were listening to Haim, I think it was, or we yeah. were listening to um how Haim and Taylor Swift just put out a song together. Okay. And he was like, "You know, I I like I love Haim. I do." And I was like, "I do too." And he's like, "But I just want to hear them go weird." And I was like, oh, so, like, do you want Haim to do a kid A? Like, you want Haim to do a video tech? And he's basically like, (laughs) yeah, you know? And so, yes, they're, like, easy to listen to. It's, like, good, like, songwriting and stuff, but generally it seems like a lot of the times that musicians get like maybe comfortable with this, like one thing that's pretty palatable in the music industry and then they go weird and people either love it or they hate it or they hate it at first and then it gets really popular, but you've kind of done your own path here and you've kind of just shown right out of the gate that, well, you do everything and you're doing it on your own time, but it was really like smart and intuitive of you to go, well, I'm going to do these simple songs and see how that gets me.
4: Yeah, exactly. It's interesting. It also taught me something, to be honest, about songwriting because I've never put a bare, like unless someone is paying me to write with them, which has happened a bunch of times. I've never put a box on my own kind of you know songwriting craft. I've never tried to or aspired to that, but I actually see how it's a really cool thing to do because sometimes when you have limitations, you reach into the corners of the that box, like you get into every nook and cranny of it um, instead of having the whole world of possibilities. So yeah, I I. Um, it's been an interesting thing, and I think it's affected my songwriting and sensibility. And I still have my weird about me, but I, I seem to be able to kind of put it in a way that it's palatable to the more majority of people right now. So that's-
0: You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals?
5: Do you like science fiction? I'm Carrie Boucher, and if you loved movies like Arrival or Interstellar, then you're going to want to check out my podcast, Hypothetical. On Hypothetical, we tell speculative sci-fi stories interwoven with real science. New episodes every Tuesday, available wherever you get
1: podcasts. That's
2: good. This week's episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. Best Fiends has challenging puzzles, but it's a casual game that anyone can play. Hey, Shanti, Mm -hmm. This past weekend, I hit level 350. Congratulations, and welcome to the club.
3: Thank you. I used your helpful tips about spinning the Fiend of Fortune as often as possible
2: to rake in those boxes so I could upgrade my adorable characters more often. That's great. I just hit level 405. I actually introduced my mom to the game while she was visiting, and she loved the vibrant graphics and storylines. Now, I have to remind you that my mom lives by herself, off the grid. So actually, it works out, and even she can play the game on her iPad. That's right, because anyone who's worried about missing out on the fun because they don't have Wi-Fi, well, guess what? The internet is not required to play, so you can have fun anytime, anywhere. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play download best fiends free on the apple app store or google play that's friends
3: without the r best fiends obviously your process has changed over the years when i listen to your music it feels so personal to me and i relate so hard especially to simple songs
1: um yeah <laughs> <very much> so. <laughs> um,
3: is that something that comes naturally to you like where's your inspiration come from lyrically
4: Yeah, I think it does come naturally to me because like I was saying before, I have no shortage of thoughts and opinions and what I realized, I think that the trick to songwriting both on the lyrical and the musical side, really, and now I have some songwriting students too, and I've, you know, done pieces in SoCan magazine on songwriting and things like this. And I think that the key is that the hard thing to conjure on command is inspiration. So, You have to harness the inspiration moments whenever they come, no matter how annoying, like on the formerly before pandemic, on the TTC, you're stuffed in between everyone and I have a song idea. Don't let it go. Like catch that song idea in that moment. Even if it's a few words, just a little melody or whatever it is, or you're trying to go to bed at night and you're like, shit, I (laughs) really needed to sleep tonight. Why did I have this amazing song idea? And then all of a sudden I'm downstairs with the guitar or with the pen and paper. So I think that you have to find that inspiration moment and then later you can tease it out. And for me, because of all these thoughts and opinions I keep talking about that I have and big feelings, like I feel things a lot. And that's probably a lot of artists feel things a lot. And that's why they want to express it as art. I just tap into the real sentiment and try not to, I don't like to over, what is it, make it too flowery or too poetic in a way. It's not that it's not poetic, but I like it to feel like a real thought or like a real conversation in a way. And then I. Yeah, I just kind of like to whatever the topic is to get real deep into that topic, even if it's something like, you know, like I wrote the song airplane mode on simple songs, which is like, it was totally just because I was wanting to hear so badly from this guy that I was dating and he wasn't getting in touch with me. And I couldn't make my mind, despite my best efforts and knowing better, I couldn't turn it off in my brain. And so I said, okay, fine, I'm turning my phone on airplane mode because now no one can get in touch with me. And now I can get on with my life for a second. And then that moment and how ridiculous that conclusion was <laughs> that was enough to write a whole song about it and delve into that sentiment surrounding that action. So, yeah. So I think it does come naturally more and more over time. Awesome. That's a good
3: tip. Yeah. To harness when it comes, you don't have to write out the whole thing, but oh, no. capture whatever you're feeling in that moment and go exactly. back to it whenever you can.
4: It's easier to tease things out once you have them at the starting bit of clay right you can just sort of like even if it's a little melody or even if it's a few words you can it's really easy to build off something existing which is connected to a strong feeling but it's really hard to just make up something from nothing in a moment unless you kind of make some parameters yeah the more parameters you can put on things the more deeply you can sort of investigate a small thing you know
2: I like never so. thought of it that way before because I'm, I'm not a songwriter. And
4: maybe you will I, be
3: after this.
2: <laughs> maybe
4: <laughs> She does
3: have a piano now.
2: Oh. <laughs> I'm just like learning like <laughs> little drummer boy, like when my mom comes. Look, nice. mom. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, we've talked about songwriting, recording. It's only natural, I think, that we talk a little bit about touring, Yeah, Um, so you sounds like you've done quite a bit of touring and traveling. Mm -hmm. What have been some of your favorite places to visit or perform? And do you have any standout memories of um, when it comes to performance experiences?
4: Oh my, there's a lot. It's been really amazing. Definitely touring was one of the reasons I wanted to do this job because I do love traveling and my parents instilled like a love of travel since we were, my sister and I were younger. And so we're all kind of like obsessed with travel. And so to be able to combine my work and traveling at the same time. And then, you know, I wised up after the first several years of touring, I wised up and started adding on like a week or two weeks of time after I send my bandmates home that I can stay there and, and experience wherever I am. And so that's been working. But you know, I, I've toured in Asia, in, in Japan several times and in China also. And one incredibly wonderful thing about playing in both of those countries is that, you know how in Toronto when you go to a show which is like half capacity, like where do the people stand in the room? They go around the perimeter, right? They're not (laughs) as far away from the stage as possible. (laughs) So in Asia, it's the opposite. Everyone floods the stage. They're up at the front. You feel so connected. They're so into it. They clap along, sing along. They'll do whatever you say. Even with the language barrier, they're right on it. And some cool experiences there were when we were in China, like we often do workshops and things with either... Students or music students, or from as young as elementary to up to university. And so we do that as sort of like a supplementary thing, a daytime paid activity that we can do is run these workshops. And I've designed some workshops about the koto and about rhythm and groove and about songwriting and things like this. And then I use my songs to demonstrate those things to these students and get them participating. So one of the things, and then about harmony and melody. So in my harmony and melody um, workshop that I did, we teach the whole room to become our backing vocalists essentially for one song. And so then we tell them that if they are at the show, that they can come up on stage and sing backing vocals for us. So that was a thrill to do that in China. There wasn't like, not the whole group, didn't come up there was like four gals that came up and sang with us at uh one show and then another you know under 10 at some other show but it was really an amazing thing to be able to include some other people in our performance on stage so that's one of the highlight kind of things. And I guess another Asian highlight would be when we played the Yokohama Jazz Promenade, which is a big jazz festival in Yokohama, which is close to Tokyo, and we played at this incredible concert hall, like amazing, with a huge organ pipe organ behind us as part of the set. It's like in a whole orchestra could fit on the stage, but it's just the three of us. And we played and I remember when we finished our very first song, and the audiences are silent until you want them to be loud, air, right? They're totally listening to every hanging off every note. And we finished the first song and the audience applause was so uproarious that I was like forced backwards a couple steps on stage because it was so much. And that was a really cool feeling as well. So I like that. And then, uh, and I've toured Australia a bunch of times, and we've had some cool things happen. Like, it's always when something unexpected happens that, you know, it really stands out. Like, the whole power to the tent we were playing at this awesome festival. I think it was a festival in Western Australia called Fairbridge Festival. And we played a bunch of shows at different tents, and this was, like, the main tent. We were in our last song. We were almost in the chorus and then the whole power to the whole tent dies, but it's a daytime show. So the lights are on. So the, but my drummer keeps playing and then we're, I'm like yelling. So like no longer will my guitar make sound and no longer will the bass, play, like the bass player can do his upright thing. But then we're just clapping along. I'm singing. I'm like yelling at the audience and they start clapping along. And then like we finish the song early, but in some victorious way. And they're like, you guys are superstars. <laughs> <laughs> like it was amazing. And then when I sold all my merch,
1: and it was one. Uh, oh, perfect! perfect.
4: <laughs> I love uh,
3: like taking what could be like a terrifying or like worst case scenario moment, and then turning it into like a magical one.
4: I know. Me too. Me too.
3: Speaking of cool experiences, I just wanted to touch back again on um, finding Fukue. Mm-hmm. So this is a CBC short documentary. And it's got 8 million views, over 8 million views now on YouTube. It's like their most watched documentary. I watched it. Shanti watched it. I shed a tear. It was Mm -hmm. adorable and amazing. I was just curious, like, how did that come about? And what's that experience been like? And the reception to it, like 8 million people. Also, you composed the music to it. So I wanted to know about that. And if that's something that you are going to do more of in the future, I would like to.
4: Yeah, so that all came about because it's like, you know, some other time I'll tell you like the bigger backstory, but it's way too long of a story for your podcast right now. But I ended up starting to teach guitar lessons to this, you know, adult student, young adult student who I had been recommended to him by someone we mutually knew. And he, the reason he was wanting to take lessons was because he was up for the director's chair of the Robbie Robertson documentary about the band, which is they once we're brothers or whatever it's called mm-hmm. so he was up for that and he wanted a leg up because he was a young guy going up against some older more seasoned directors and so he thought this is my way in if I can play guitar I can connect to Robbie and I love their music and so he started taking lessons with me so he is a Director and a a filmmaker, made a lot of documentaries and Mm. worked with CBC in the past. So, about a year or so into our lessons, and we became friends, we kind of had like a brother sister kind of vibe. And like, because he's Jewish too, and me, and he reminds me of people I went to summer camp with, and like, you know, just kind of had a good vibe between us. And then so we would chat here and there. And at the end of one of our lessons, I said some totally innocuous thing about when I lived in Japan as a kid, because he had seen me play before and seen me play the koto. So I, I knew I spoke Japanese. So I assumed that he knew that I had lived in Japan. And then he said, what do you mean you lived in Japan as a kid? And I was like, oh yeah, you didn't know? He's like, I just thought you were a Japanophile. I'm like, no, no, I actually <laughs> lived there. My parents lived there before I was born for four years and like, blah, 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 and all this stuff. And he's like, wow, are you in touch with anyone there still? Like, do you have friends still from when you lived there? I'm like, well, we got family friends, but like the truth is I only really had one true friend, one person who really got to know me and I who I got to know. And I her and I stayed in touch for a year and a half or two after I left, but then I stopped hearing from her and he's like tell me more about that and I was like oh okay and so I like said another sentence or two and he said I want to find your friend I'm like yeah I tried I went back in 2006 when I was in Japan for the first time of course a part of my mission was looking for kukue and I even got some help but we came up short I don't know you're going to be able to do it he's like I find people this is what I do that's what he said. And I was like, dude, if you want to try, like, if you want to help me find my friend, I'm, I'm not opposed to it. He's like, you'd let me film you. I'm like, hell yeah I'm like but you gotta let me do the soundtrack like it was was all a joke like this was the initial conversation right and two days later he wrote me said I wrote up a pitch I'm gonna do this can we film some like stuff so I can have like a proper package to give to CBC because I think they'd be into this so then we started filming some different like interviews and talking to my parents about what kind of archival footage they had because I knew as it turns out it was almost the whole year that we were there so like um, there was a lot of footage of stuff that like I kind of blocked it out of my mind I don't remember there being like a camera person around a lot of the time but like I guess there was and so we figured out what there was and then he pitched it to CBC and a matter of weeks after the pitch they were like this is it we want this and then we were five weeks later off to Japan looking for my friend so it is pretty wild it all kind of seemed to happen so quickly and I don't know I guess should I be leaving this as a mystery to the to the listener or
3: i mean eight million people have already seen it
4: (laughs) but the thing is it going viral then is like completely even totally wilder because i remember looking like for instance okay so cat's out of the bag i found fukue um (laughs) (laughs) so i remember so you know fukue really values her privacy and this is a very japanese thing and especially in a small town and especially when you have a history which includes being treated poorly you know like bullying and this and that so she really values her privacy so when we were out there you know I didn't care about the film I cared about being reunited with my friend and her feelings and so we we were talking to her and she said where is this going to be you know I was like are you comfortable being on camera and you know after the initial stuff and and doing extra interviews and she said you know I'm okay as long as it's for Canada and is this going to be you know shown in Japan I'm like oh no absolutely not and and I'm like and also in Canada just so you know like these documentaries, the most viewed doc- documentary ever by this organization is 60,000 views. So don't worry, no one's going to see it. That's what I told her. And so like, you know what's crazy <laughs> is So like, and we did other things, like we got actually a whole bunch of Japanese media requests because they, we ended up having like, as you guys saw in the documentary, there was, I was surprised to walk into a press conference at city hall when we were there looking for family records so then the the local like the the city a prefecture and some national press were covering this story but especially the locals like were really interested and so we got all these press um requests and I asked Fukui and she said I don't want to and I'm like no problem and I'm like nope we're not going to do them so that was it so you know I was very much on top of that so the biggest mind fuck for me was that it went viral and then my whole concern was like oh my god I have to talk to Fukui does she think that I knew that this was happening and that I bullshitted her in order to get her on film like I was just like, what if this film blowing up is the reason that fuku and I's friendship will implode because she'll think I lied to her. And I was like, this is horrible. At first when it started going viral, I was like really worried about it, actually. So so that's what was going on. That's like a funny little side story there. I don't think I've actually really mentioned <laughs> to anyone. But um, yeah, So so that happened. And then, yeah, so I did the... That was a very crazy experience. And how did Fuque
2: then... feel about it going viral? Did she end up being like, "Well, okay, it just happened," or maybe when she actually saw the doc herself, she saw maybe how yeah. beautiful it was and why it would be so popular? I, I'm yeah, just guessing I think, here. I, how did she feel? About yeah, that?
4: she. I think she loved it. Um, she loved it very much and she doesn't speak fluent English so and they didn't provide subtitles for Japan on purpose someone had made a translation and I said she didn't want it shown in Japan so let's not add these language things because that's the only way Japanese people are going to be able to watch it really so I think she saw it and she thought it was beautiful I think she was very surprised at anyone just like me that anyone would be so ladies like here's the funny thing is that this was put out as a a real YouTube channel with two plus million subscribers. This was a co-production or they, they buddied up or Real Stories buddied up or something. So when it was released by Real Stories, like at, you know, two months after or whatever to a completely different audience, it didn't go viral. And then it was released again a few months ago to some other documentary related thing. And someone just texted me like six weeks ago telling me that it had just been put up there. I can't remember the name of it. It also didn't go viral. So I don't know if it's, you know, I, I strongly believe just by virtue of no, knowing how um, many amazing musicians, artists, and people who are not known at all or don't have traditional success, I, I don't think that the quality of something correlates to the viralness or the popularity of it. And I think that in this case, we just got lucky because as, you, as I mentioned and all of us mentioned, this has been viewed so many more times, like millions more times than the most viewed other thing on CBS. So I think it was just good timing. I think it got released during Thanksgiving, American Thanksgiving weekend two years ago. And I think that the timing helped it. And then all of a sudden, there was people looking for family appropriate content, which wasn't too long, which was a good feeling. And so then it just people started watching it. And then YouTube started suggesting it to others. And that's how it went. It's like YouTube's algorithm probably made it viral. I think it's also
3: the story. I mean, it's like you said, you can't help but like feel good and maybe shed a tear. It feels so personal, but also relatable. Like we all have that long lost best friend that we'd love to, you know, be in touch with again. Yeah. What? have you felt the reception
4: of 8 million people? I have. I, all of a sudden I have YouTube subscribers and so <laughs> I have started upping my YouTube game only in the past year. I should have probably done it before, but so yeah. And people are contacting me literally every day through one platform or another I get DMs on Instagram, on Facebook through my Facebook page, people commenting on my YouTube videos and writing me messages through my website. Yeah, so I'm feeling that. And you know, I I got recognized once in an airport in in Tel Aviv and that was cool. And yeah, so I am definitely feeling that and uh, and also along with this I like did the whole arc of learning how to deal with like haters and stuff, because, mm. you know, I, uh, you guys know from what I've been saying, I, this, I, we had no idea that this would become a popular thing. So this wasn't some kind of a promotional tool for my career in any sense. That was never a part of my thought process about it, except for maybe I was thinking I would have the credit of a film score, which I'll come back to in a second. But, um you know, people have all sorts of things to say about, my intentions and this matter and bothered me because I have been completely on the level and completely with the best of intentions and only good things for Fukui and myself uh, in mind throughout the whole process. So I don't like that when someone puts my my ethic or my more my whatever, my reasons into question. And then there's other stuff, like people telling me that I'm ugly and like look like this or that animal or that like, I need to go to the gym or like things like that. And I'm like, oh, or that I'm an actor and I'm like, I must be a really freaking good actor because like, I don't know any actor who makes himself look like, like do ugly cries, like throughout, like the thing, like <laughs> you think I want people to say, you think that was on purpose? No, it's just, um, I seem to just be able to tune out cameras. So I was just being completely myself, completely myself. And that was it. So, yeah, so I learned how to deal with that. And I've now taken to humor with those situations actually. And, and I'll say things like, uh, you know, you know, whatever it is, I'll say, sorry. I didn't realize that on top of, you know, having an interesting life story, I also needed to be a model and uh, fit into your sample size clothing to please you in this thing. Sorry, I'll work on that for next time. You know, (laughs) shit like that. Just like making them feel like, realize the idiocy of their comments. This has been like a fun little game I've played, but you know, relatively there's been so few haters and so many people gushing over this and sharing their experiences too with me and everything, which is really meaningful. And actually, yeah, it's been, it's been really wonderful to hear, hear everyone's stories and hear from everyone.
2: Well, thank you for sharing both the positive and negative side to those to that coin. Um, And it's a good reminder. And the way that you dealt like that, you deal with it so gracefully as well is yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, yeah.
4: And then I guess there was the question about the film score and everything. And I had never done, so I'd I'd composed music for film score before, but never, I'd sort of given files of music I had composed that would work for the mood of the scenes I had been asked to compose for. And I'd sent those files over to whoever was in charge of the music. So this was the first time doing that. And I did work with someone uh, a little bit on that part as well, and I can't remember his name right now, so I'm sorry about that. Uh, I'll maybe look that up, but anyway, so he was someone with a lot of experience, and he gave me some good advice because I didn't know how to start, and he said that basically write a first kind of like theme and get it approved by the directors and the whoever's in charge, and then you can ex- extrapolate musical elements from that theme throughout the film in different ways, underpin them differently and just take from that source material. It's again like the inspiration thing I was talking about. It's like as if that main theme is the inspired moment, then you can pull it apart in different ways and reorganize it for different portions of the film. And then we also used uh, some of the instrumentals of certain existing pieces of music of mine as well. So there was both original content written and then also some of the instrumentals of existing music. But I wrote the song, Fuku is Theme, part one, actually, while we were shooting B-roll in Tokyo after we had reconnected. They were filming me for slow-mo on Koto and I was like, I had had this idea already and it felt like the song, the music felt like, reminiscent and happy and sad at the same time. And I was like, that's perfect for this feeling of having reconnected. And so I actually wrote the song on camera, but it wasn't captured. Like they had no audio capture, but I wrote the song while they were filming me. And then when I got back to Canada, I completed the song. I sent it to them. They were like, yeah, this is good, but you're not allowed lyrics. I'm like, I know, I know, but I just write songs, right? So I'm like writing this song and uh, we'll we'll remove the lyrics and I'll, you know, make the rest of the score. And so we worked it like that. And then I convinced them at the end. I said, listen, when the credits are rolling, I really think you could throw the lyrics in there. And he's like, it's very unconventional. I'm like, I think it'll work. I think you can do it. And so then he did it. And I was like, woohoo, because then like that's my most, you know, purchased listened to played song of all time yeah so i i released it one month after i wasn't planning to release any of those things that was just going to be for the soundtrack but there was such popular demand actually people asking about what's that song at the end is that jessica's song is that the one she talked about in the film and so i decided to put it out a month later and and it was good
2: want to just watch it all over again like you know <laughs> I watched it this for like that one time without having met you and heard these stories and now I just want to go watch it again and actually my mom's coming to visit so that'd probably be something really oh, great to show her as well and I think it's I'll do totally that I think a yeah. I'll wait till she's here. And because I had pen pals too, uh, growing up yeah. and I understand as a nine year old girl, how important that relationship is and how close and personal and how you can really get to know somebody in that mm-hmm. way. And so I think I'll, I definitely want to watch it again. And so I'll do that with my mom this, this I week.
1: love that. I love it. <laughs>
3: You don't only perform your own music. Mm -hmm. You are in a Radiohead tribute band and I've heard rumors of a previous metal band and I, I gotta, I gotta know what's going on with that and what's it like to play your own music versus another uh, band's music?
4: I love playing all sorts of music and I don't think I would probably be satisfied just doing one type of music all of the time even if it was my own I would always probably want to be doing some other things as well and so I've always aspired to have a career which was made up of both an original music career where I am the singer and songwriter and then also um, side person career where I am most of the time a guitarist occasionally a koto player for someone or a backing vocalist or something so I've I you know I'm my, my roots are in rock and roll with guitar. So I'm very happy in a rock and roll place. And so, yeah, I play in Idiotech, which is a, the world's premier Radiohead tribute band. And um, I've played in a whole bunch of other groups as well. And, you know, one of those is Luke Roberts, awesome Toronto-based guitar player, songwriter, singer, his metal project, Ayahuasca. So I was a member of that for a few years. And I learned a lot of things. Each new project, if it's a very specific project, niche because I hadn't played sort of metal before. I'd played heavy music, but not like metal specifically. So I like had to learn a bunch of new guitar techniques and, and things, which is really great. I love that about playing in other people's projects as well. Like I remember I was booked for, my friend from Ashley back in Vancouver, DDO or NDDO Nukulu, I, I don't know which name she's going by now, but she's like a successful artist and she had, she lives in the States, but she had like a showcase in Newfoundland, you know, a year and a half ago and she's a blues artist and she only had budget for one accompanist. So she hired me as the blues guitarist for her project, which I'm not a blues guitarist, however, I got into the tones and the timbres, I like got into the nuance of it and I like I slayed that. People were coming up to me like, "How long have you been playing the blues?" Like I don't see any like female blues guitar players very often and and I'm like, "Oh, you know, just, you know, we've been playing for years." Like whatever. Like so you just have to be very adaptable, but I really enjoy it. And I enjoy digging in like with this, um, you know, I, I was playing with Wiz the MC this past month as his guitar player in a new live band uh, element of his project and just digging into a new artist, another artist's album or music and like picking out, because the difficult thing is that when you're playing for other people, if it's based on existing recorded music, there's like tons of guitar layers and I'm one guitar player. And they're like, yeah, learn the guitar part. And you're like, cool, there's eight (laughs) guitar parts. Um, So like, one of the things that I've learned to do is how to do a reduction where I take what I hear, I have to just go by what I hear, and then they can adjust, they can ask for something else once we get to rehearsal, I have to decide what i think the most musically important parts are and then i try to do as much as possible so there will be like the main part but then i might like pick up some little lines in the middle here and there i might try to make a mutt of a part which involves parts of you know multiple guitar layers and so i've become really good at doing these reductions and it's really a fun project for me so i love it And then also playing with Idiotech or playing with rock music and heavy music. Even though I have Glory playing with the Jessica Stewart view or Jessa with my trio on stage, yeah, I jump around and like it's an amazing feeling. But when you play heavy music or like rock music, um, you can really let loose. And especially because I don't have to sing in that project, I'm just an electric guitar player. So when I play with Idiotech, I get to crowd surf off the stage. I get to do huge jumps when there's like, like impactful moments of the music. I get to like headbang until like the next morning I'm like I'm old and I can't headbang anymore (laughs) and like you know stuff like that so it's it's really glorious and like people like scream for you and like they they just think you're a rock star and it's really fun just to be a rock star
2: I was Sometimes. gonna say they think yeah. you're a rock star because you are a rock star. <laughs> that is awesome. Well, I like that. I'm gonna I'm gonna put that on my bio. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Professional rock stars. You get Damn. the best of all worlds so that good. way.
2: That's so cool. Yeah. 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 This has been so fascinating. It's been so <laughs> awesome getting to know you. If people oh. want to get to know you a little bit further, they can head over to your YouTube channel. You do some fun, creative things over there, yeah. and you also do a monthly playlist on spotify do you want to talk about those projects a little bit and you are just so multifaceted where's a good place for people to dive in for you (laughs) i
4: think that you could i mean instagram is a good place to start maybe because there's some you can hear some things see some things and then it also has like you know a link tree to everywhere else you might want to go but yeah my youtube channel i'm really updating and adding cool stuff all the time oftentimes to do with musical things sometimes to do with finding fukue stuff and then I know that you guys know about my like recent merch I've added some new merch along with this new album I put out and like I'm a very physical person and I love hacky sack and billiards okay so I didn't manufacture pool cues with Jessa on them <laughs> but I did make Jessa hacky sacks and during the pandemic it's been I've been just like hacking up a storm whenever I can it's an amazing way to be outside and and not be in COVID range with anyone and get exercise and outdoor time and so I thought you know I want to combine these things because especially for some reason in pop music as a woman in pop music people a assume that you're a singer you can't be the writer or you maybe you're a co-writer but they assume you're not the instrumentalist you're not the whatever and that you have this role you've just got to be this like nice little pop thing but it's like I'm like a rough and tumble girl I can you know kick a hacky sack you know as good as the the best of them and like be physical and like run around and like grunt and do things and like that's just a part of like the pop girl thing too you know that's we're not just one dimensional all of us so i really enjoying that in so I made like a hack sack tutorial on my YouTube channel and stuff like that that's why I was mentioning but uh it's just it's silly but it's cute no, it's great yeah, so there's a lot of places you like I it. love it because
3: <laughs> uh, that's like one thing that I really associate with you is the hacky sack because I've seen you and you're amazing. And yeah, the the fact that you put up tutorials like with your, amazingly adorable hacky sack <laughs> that you're selling was like, perfect. I even feel like I hear that influence in your music because of like the way that it flows and the movement and everything. And it made perfect sense. Like that's the perfect merch for you. I think like that was brilliant. Thank Very brilliant. you. I was I'm... also telling Shanti about uh, your pool
4: skills. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm a, I'm a pool player. Yeah, I'm a pool player. Although I haven't played for so long because it's the pandemic. But yeah, but Lynx, you and I know each other through a place. i go play pool
2: so i can't wait till we can go
3: and play
4: together
2: i know and jess is there anything that we didn't mention already that we want to chat about before we wrap it up today
4: Oh, I forgot to mention about the playlist, the new Spotify playlist, which, yeah, Spotify is an asshole. And, you know, there's a lot of problems there with musicians and songwriters getting even, I don't know, I would say a living wage, but it's so far off from that. So that's, I just want to start off with that. However, I also recognize that we have to kind of, there's not that many ways to get around it unless you have big money to promote in other arenas. So I have, you know, been always really community-oriented and trying to up- uplift my fellow musicians. And, you know, it, maybe it started out of like a selfish place in a way in that I wish people would do that for me. However, it's translated because I feel so proud of the people that I've come in contact with through my music life around the world. And there's people like, as I was saying before, success is definitely not proportionate to skill and ingenuity and creativity and deservedness. So, I've been several years, I've been putting a focus on trying to kind of like correct in the way that I can, the discrepancy between amazingness um, as an artist and player and whatever and success. And so I started booking these two monthly music events um, a couple of years ago in Toronto. And now obviously with the pandemic, and those were really gaining steam and they were beautiful events, but then pandemic happened. So those are off. And so it took some time, but I realized that in the absence of that, I can at least do playlists featuring the artists that I have encountered. So the whole theme of the playlist is just that people I've encountered through my musical travels. So a lot of them are from here, but there's plenty from Australia, Japan, States, this place, that place. It's called Jessa and Friends. And each month on the first Friday of the month, which correlates with Bandcamp Fridays if they're still doing it in the new year, um, so that people might go and buy the music of the artists that they've just found that day through my playlist. I put out this list and each one has a different theme. So the first month's theme was chill in the evening. And and then the second month's theme was living room dance party. And now this month's theme is Indie for Inspiration. And so I'm going to keep going. I think one of the next ones is going to be sexy cuddles Ooh, or something like that. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's cold and we got to have a soundtrack of our sexy cuddle time.
3: <laughs> Perfect. I also just wanted to mention quickly that on your website, you offer private songwriting lessons. So if anyone out there, you know, it's the new year, it's COVID. If you have a goal of like trying to write songs, this is a perfect opportunity to get a great lesson in it.
4: Awesome! Thanks for mentioning that. Yeah, it's also you know sometimes also for people's birthdays and things like that. They they've been talking. Oh, I wish I could write songs, or I wish I could play guitar, or whatever. And this is a a cool idea for a gift too. I like the idea of giving a gift of experience to someone. So so I might keep it up there for a bit. We'll see. We'll see how long I keep it up there.
2: And then, where can people find that if they go? Okay, I'm listening right now, and I'm looking up on my phone right now. Where are we it going? Will be- jessicastuartmusic.com
4: is the website slash store. Perfect. Thank you so much
3: for thank sitting you. down with us. I'm so glad we finally had the opportunity to do this.
4: I am so honored. Honestly, I, uh, I can't thank you two enough. And yeah, Lynx, it's so awesome to be involved with your work. And uh, I respect Same. what you gals do so much. And yeah, I really appreciate you bringing me in
3: great and I can't wait till uh we're back in the park hacky second and playing pool and <laughs>
1: hopefully I'll see you soon all my friends keep saying should have been
2: Muses is produced by Chantal Lemieux and Lynx O'Leary and is part of the Pantheon family of podcasts. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at pantheonpodcasts.com All songs can be found wherever you get your music. Please download and purchase these great and important tracks. Come find us at Pantheon Podcasts on Facebook. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods or see us at r and Archaeology on Instagram.
5: Have you ever watched a futuristic sci-fi movie and wondered, but wait, could any of this really happen? And will I live long enough to see it? That's what our show Hypothetical is about. I'm Carrie Bechet, and on this podcast, we ask what if questions about the future, like what if we could read minds? What if the world's digital data was erased all at once? What would happen if the Yellowstone supervolcano erupted? Then we explore that question two ways through speculative science fiction and through dialogue with brilliant scientists result is a genre-bending narrative that's interwoven with real facts provided by literal geniuses and spoiler alert a lot of the science fiction out there it's not nearly as far-fetched as you might think come time travel with me into the future on hypothetical new episodes on tuesdays available on all your favorite podcast apps just search hypothetical that's h-y-p-e-r-t-h-e-t-i-c-a-l